The following message is by Pastor Jason Pauley. More information from Harmony Bible Church is available at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. So today we continue our journey in the book of Revelation as we look at Christ's letter to the church in Pergamum. And Pergamum, just so you know, is a wealthy city. It's located about 20 miles east of Smyrna, which is the church we talked about last week or two weeks ago when we were last in the book of Revelation. Its name, the, the name Pergamum, means citadel in Greek. And it was named such because it, was, it sat on top of a cone-shaped hill that towered some 1,000 feet above the surrounding valley. So this city overlooked this huge valley sitting 1,000 feet above it. In fact, it was so impressive that the famous Roman author Pliny said that it was by far the most distinguished city in all of Asia. And in addition to being impressive because of its position high above the surrounding area, it also had the honor of being named the capital of Asia. And therefore, it was the seat of the Roman government, the the center from which Rome administered its rule over the entire region. And Pergamum was well known for its university, which included a library with about 200,000 volumes, which is a huge library, especially considering books were handwritten at that time. It's second only to the library in Alexandria, probably the most famous library in all of history. And it was well known as well for its production and distribution of parchment. Uh, Probably uh, because there was a high demand to write, uh, for material to write things on because of the library. And eventually, Pergamum became known as the place where parchment was uh, not invented, but uh, distributed and manufactured uh, quite widely. And last but not least, Pergamum was well known for its various temples, both to temples to pagan gods, including Zeus, Athena, Asclepius, and Dionysus. So we had these temples to pagan gods. And then, if that's not enough, there were temples honoring the Roman emperors. They had several temples honoring not only emperors who had died, but living Roman emperors who they would worship in the temple. And I say all that just to say that Pergamum, to give you a picture of what Pergamum was, was like, Pergamum was an important center of intellectual, cultural, religious, and political thought. And in the midst of that city, in the midst of this very important city, God calls the people out to Himself. He establishes His church. And what we have in today's text is a letter addressed to this church. And this letter is written by Jesus some 60 years after His earthly ministry. So without further delay, let's look at our text. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're in Revelation 2, verses 12. Through 17. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write The one who has the sharp two edged sword says this I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way 
hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against you. I will make war against them, excuse me, with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So let's begin by looking at verse 12, as we consider both the recipients and the author of this letter. Verse 12 says this, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And here we see that this letter, like all of the other letters written in Revelation, all seven of the letters written to the churches, is addressed to the angel, the messenger of this particular church. Therefore, we know that it wasn't just a letter written to just the elders, or to the deacons, or to a select few. But instead, it was to be communicated to the entire church at Pergamum. See, Jesus told John to write these words to the messenger of the church. Probably the bishop or the pastor. Because the intention was for the letter to be communicated to the entire body of believers there. He wanted everyone to hear these words. This letter is also like the other letters to the churches in Revelation. And that Jesus describes himself in a unique way in the opening words of this letter. Here to the church in Pergamum, Jesus refers to himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is clearly a reference back to the opening words of Revelation. Uh, if you look at Revelation 1.16, John says, in his right, he's, he's saying, I saw this vision of this, this individual. And in 1.16 he says, in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Clearly a picture of Jesus. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And this picture of a sharp two-edged sword should immediately cause those familiar with Scripture to think back to Hebrews 4.12. There, in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us this. He says, The Word of God is living and active and is sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So what does Jesus mean? Why does He come to them and say, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the one that proceeds out of my mouth. Jesus is speaking clearly of His deity. He's reminding the church in Pergamum that the Word of God proceeds out of His mouth because He is God. That His Word not only has authority, but it has power. He's speaking of His ability to proclaim that which is true and declare something else to be false. To separate truth from error, right from wrong. And His sword is sharp. So sharp that it can separate that which seems inseparable. Joints and marrow. Soul and spirit. 
So sharp is his sword that it doesn't divide based on just one's actions, but is also able to judge the thoughts. Every thought. That's kind of scary. Every thought, every intention of the heart. And when he divides with his word, he's able to do so accurately. There's no sloppy edges. If you've seen me cook, you've seen me in the kitchen with a kitchen knife, there are sloppy edges. It's quite scary. If you see me trying to cut the fat off from a piece of meat, sometimes there's, like, there's more meat on the fat than there is the meat that I'm trying to actually cut. And it gets messy. But there's no sloppy edges with Jesus. His sword is sharp. He's able to accurately divide. And this description should cause the church in Pergamum to sit up and pay attention to what is about to be said. When he says, say this to the messenger, write this down, for I'm the one that has the sharp two-edged sword, they should sit up and the same should be the response from us. We know that the one with the sharp two-edged sword is also personally addressing us. And we know that because he closes the letter by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So with that in mind, let's consider exactly what Jesus has to say to the church in Pergamum. Like the two letters before it, the church to Ephesus, uh, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to the church in Smyrna, Jesus begins this letter with a word of encouragement. So the first point in your sermon outline is their praise. Number one, their praise. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus comes and says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. See here, Jesus commends the church for holding fast to His name despite difficult circumstances. And there are many ideas regarding exactly what Jesus means when He says, this is the place where Satan's throne is. Some have argued that uh, the references to the Temple of Zeus, that the Temple of Zeus looked like a throne that sat on top of this giant hill. And therefore, Jesus is referring to that very throne, that very temple. Others have argued that it was uh, the worship of the false god named Asclepius. That Asclepius was depicted as a snake. And that the snake was the, Asclepius was the god of healing. And I made a joke earlier this week as I was talking to Sue. I said Asclepius' daughter was uh, the goddess of Hygiena. The goddess of cleanliness, right? And we, sometimes we get these words and we don't always understand where they come from. But he was the god of healing and he's depicted as a snake. And then that what Jesus was thinking of was that people worshipped this snake, hence the connection with Satan, the serpent. And others say, no, no, it's referring to the Roman government in Pergamum. The one who has their throne in Pergamum. The evil, evil government of Rome. It seems best, however, to apply Jesus' words in a more general sense. In other words, Jesus was speaking out against all of the evils that existed in the city of Pergamum. He says, Satan's throne is in Pergamum. It is Satan's dwelling place because he had so greatly influenced that city. And in doing so, he's emphasizing what Paul said when he called Satan the god of this world in Corinthians 4.4. 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3-4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, Satan is the God of this world and he's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So without even most of them knowing it, those who are in this world, they willingly willingly place themselves in subjection to Satan. And Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum that just as Rome had appointed Pergamum as the capital of Asia, the place from where they established their rule and their authority over the region, so also Satan had such an influence in Pergamum that it was, though, it was as though he established his rule from Pergamum. That's where his throne sat. It was the center of satanic influence in the whole region. Jesus then goes on in verse, the rest of verse 13 to say that the church in Pergamum held fast to his name. He says, even in the days of Antipas. He says, then you live in this evil culture where Satan's throne is and you held fast to my name and you did so even in the days of Antipas. And we don't really know much about Antipas. We, we know very little from Scripture. We have this verse. But church tradition says that he was a leader in the church who was martyred for his faith by being roasted inside a brass bull. The culture in which the early church lived thought of all kinds of different ways to torture believers. And tradition says that they put him inside a, a brass bull and roasted him alive. We can't say for sure what the exact circumstances were surrounding his death. That's what tradition says. But what we do know is that Jesus calls him my witness, my faithful one. So we do know that he remained faithful to Jesus and continued to share him until the very end. In fact, the word witness, when Jesus says he is my witness, the Greek word here is martus. And it's from where we get our English word martyr. See, as persecution continued to get worse and worse, to be a witness for Jesus, to tell others about your faith in Him, eventually became synonymous with dying. That if you were going to share Jesus, if you were going to witness for Jesus, you were going to die. Therefore, you were martyred. Gives a whole new perspective on going out and witnessing, doesn't it? Should. And maybe the reason, this is just a sermon within a sermon, this is free. Uh, maybe the reason that we don't go out and witness on the streets of Rockland or to our neighbors is because it doesn't cost us much. Well, Lord, if persecution is what causes the church to witness, then bring persecution, Lord. Bring persecution. So let's continue on to the rest of our text. Having seen their praise that the church in Pergamum held fast to Christ's name, they didn't deny Him, even in the midst of difficult circumstances and persecution, now let's look at the second point. The second point in our sermon outline is the problem. So we've seen their praise, now we see the problem. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. 
or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The issue at the church at Pergamum was not that they were not dealing properly with the world around them. It was that they were not dealing properly with those inside the church, those in the church who were not following the teaching of Scripture, who were following teaching that was indeed contrary to Scripture. The church in Pergamum was not properly addressing false doctrine. See, false doctrine had worked its way into the church. So Jesus says to them, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. And you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is this teaching that Jesus is talking about? Well, we talked about Balaam a number of months ago when we were in 2 Peter. And I was going to ask for a volunteer to come up and see if they could uh, just refresh our memory on what was said in that uh, message in 2 Peter, but I think instead we'll try to cover that here. In 2 Peter 2.15, Peter says, he's talking about false teachers, and he says, forsaking the right way, these false teachers, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved unrighteousness. So Peter references Balaam. The book of Revelation, Jesus himself references Balaam, and the story of Balaam can be found in Numbers 22-24. through We're not going to read the whole story. We don't have time to do that now. But I encourage you to do that this week. Look at Numbers 22 through 24. Actually continue all the way to chapter 31. You probably remember Balaam. He was the guy whose donkey spoke to him. right? And from the book of Numbers, we we learn that Balaam is offered money by Balak, the king of the Moabites. And he's offered money to curse the people of Israel. And he doesn't accept the money at first. He says, no, no, I can't do that. And then when he's offered more money... His greed gets the better of him and he sets out on a journey to meet the king of Moab. And after an incident with his donkey, he refuses to go and then his donkey rebukes him, right? An ass sees the situation clearly and says, what is wrong with you? But he continues on. He continues on. God says, continue on. Get your heart right. The donkey rebukes him and he continues on. He meets the king of Moab. And even though Balaam is asked to curse the people of Israel three times. He says, uh, says, curse the people of Israel, curse the people of Israel, curse the people of Israel. He does not. Instead, he blesses them. Balaam says, no, I, I must bless the people of Israel, for I cannot curse what God has blessed. And if you stop at the end of chapter four, you think, wow, Balaam's a great guy, right? Like, he, yeah, he got greedy and he got kind of messed up and he was going to go and he was going to curse them. But in the end of the day, he's a hero. He said, no, I'm not doing it because God won't let me. I'm not going to curse the people. But if you continue reading all the way to chapter 31, you discover that while he wasn't able to curse the people of Israel, he showed the Moabites how the people of Israel might bring cursings upon themselves. How they might bring judgment upon themselves. In Numbers 31.16, Moses says this. He says, Behold these, referring to the Moabite women, says these Moabite women caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. So he's saying, Balaam counseled these Moabite women to cause the sons of Israel to commit sin against the Lord. So when Jesus says in Revelation that the teaching of Balaam involved putting up a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality, we begin to to see a more clear picture of exactly what Balaam did. You see, Balaam could not curse the Israelites. 
So instead, he helped the Moabites by developing a plan for their women to lure the sons of Israel into sin, to entice them where they knew, where he knew that their temptation would be hardest to resist. We're all familiar with the expression, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? And clearly that's one of the things that Balaam used here. And if you've been on earth any length of time, you know the other way to a man's heart. That that if you want to cause a man to get focused on something that is ungodly, you just appeal to his flesh. And that's exactly what the Moabite women did. They enticed them in areas that they could not resist, leading them into immoral behavior. You take a man who goes off to war, and there's a couple of things on his mind when he returns. And such was the case with the sons of Israel. And Balaam knew this. And in the same way, some in Pergamum, they're holding to the teaching of Balaam. This is inside the church. This is not the city of Pergamum where Jesus says the city of Pergamum does these things. He says this is happening inside the church in Pergamum. See, these people were promoting behavior with their teaching that God had clearly forbid and thus was causing people to stumble by promoting this teaching. They were causing people to stumble. Now, In contrast, when we talk about the Nicolaitans, those are the followers of Balaam. We talk about the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about them. This is the group that we mentioned a few weeks ago when we looked at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Look at Revelation 2.6 with me. Revelation 2.6, this is inside the letter to the church at Ephesus. It says this. Yet, Jesus, speaking to Ephesus, says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Scripture does not give us a clear answer on exactly what these Nicolaitans were teaching. What we do know is that Jesus says He hated their deeds and He commended the church in Ephesus for also hating their deeds. And the situation at Pergamum is much different. There were some who held to the teachings of the Nicolaitans and for that they received this warning. So, We don't know the exact nature of the false teaching that was going on in Pergamum. Not all of the false teaching. But it's clear that the false teaching led to a moral behavior. The kind of behavior that Jesus says he hates. And it's likely that the continual pagan feasts, the feasts that celebrated food sacrifice to idols, and immoral sexual promiscuity, that that in this culture combined with the intellectual debates that sought higher learning and the Roman culture, that all those things had a dramatic impact on those within the city who claimed to be followers of Christ. Because it only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. And some within the church were letting the culture shape their theology. They were not letting the Word of God shape their theology. So as the culture departed further and further from biblical truth. So did the church. And I believe this is what we see in our churches today. If there was ever a message that's applicable to the church today, it is this. 
The church in America, in some sense, has become the church in Pergamum. And I said this, Harmony, when we started this. I think that as we go through the, the, seven, the letters to the seven churches, we'll see a little bit of Ephesus in us. We'll see a little bit of Smyrna in us. We'll see a little bit of Thyatira in us. And I think today, we even see a little bit of Pergamum in us. Where we let our culture shape our theology to some extent, and we have to step back from that and say, no, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that will be what forms my theology. And the churches today, they see the subject of divorce, and they say, well, maybe, maybe the Word of God doesn't, maybe it's not that bad, or, or maybe the issue of abortion that we talked about last week, maybe, or maybe homosexuality, or maybe the exclusive claims of Jesus. And every one of these things is under attack in our culture today. And notice Jesus doesn't say, shame on you, city of Pergamum. He says, I have this against you, that you tolerate some in the church who hold to this false teaching. And notice what Jesus says in verse 16. Verse 16, He says this, Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, you repent, or else I am coming to them and will make war against them. You see, the church was responsible for correcting the wrong teaching that was happening. And they needed to repent of not correcting it. When we contrast this with the church in Ephesus, we see something quite remarkable. The church in Ephesus, they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. We read that earlier. They hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, but they were, conf- they were confronted with the fact that even though they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, they weren't loving. They had lost, they had left their first love. So zealous was the church in Ephesus to have good theology and moral behavior that they were not acting in love for each other. They were ready to cast anyone out. Anyone and everyone. Get rid of them. The church in Pergamum is just the opposite. Probably in an effort to be loving, to be tolerant. Right? Judge not, lest you be judged. Well, I need to take the plank out of my own eye before I take the speck out of my brother's eye. In an effort to be loving and tolerant, they were allowing bad teaching to go uncorrected. And ironically, what's ironic is that 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 kind of behavior is not loving. It's not loving at all. Jesus says, repent, or I'm going to make war with them with the sword of my mouth. You repent, or I will make war with them. In other words, they're culpable. The church is culpable for not correcting the false teaching. Jesus says, I will speak authoritative words of judgment against them. The implication being that the loving thing to do was to warn them. The loving thing was to tell the the false teachers, those following Balaam and the the way of the Nicolaitans, that they were wrong. We've talked about this issue a little bit in Bill's Sunday school class. And the fact of the matter is, it's not loving to fail to correct those within the church. It is not loving to fail to correct those within the church. In fact, it is cruel. That's why Jesus in Matthew 18, he tells a story of a good shepherd. He says, the good shepherd, he's got a hundred sheep and one of them goes away and the good shepherd, he leaves the hundred and goes after, leaves the 99 and goes after the one, the one that's straying. And we read that and we go, yes, yes, go after the one that's straying. Yes, Lord Jesus, that's great. 
But then when we read on and we see the way in which the church does that, Jesus continues and says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his sin in private. If he does not repent, then go and bring another believer. If he still doesn't repent, bring it to the church. When we see the way in which we go after the one who is straying, we say, whoa, this is uncomfortable. We may even say, that doesn't seem very loving. And Jesus says, that is the loving thing to do. You want to go after the one? That's how you go after the one. It's not loving to say, you're okay, I'm okay, everything's okay. Instead, you say, no, this is wrong. The church in Pergamum had a problem. They failed to correct false teaching. And it was leading people astray. So let's continue on. Having seen their praise, that they held fast to His name, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, and the problem, they had failed to correct false teaching. Now we see the promise. Look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 says this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give you a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. This verse promises two things to him who overcomes. Before we look at these promises, let's be sure we remember that we remember exactly who Jesus is talking about. I've said this the last couple of weeks. 1 John 5, 4 through 5 says this Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's the victory. That's the overcoming. Believing that Jesus is the Son of God and placing trust in Him and Him alone. That is the Gospel. That though I am a sinner, Christ died for me and I need that forgiveness. That even my righteous deeds are but filthy rags. But Christ came and lived a perfect life died on the cross for my sins so that I might be forgiven. He took my place and He was raised on the third day defeating death and sin. Praise God. That is overcoming. So to Him who overcomes, consider these promises. Number one, Jesus says, I will give Him, Him who overcomes, some of the hidden manna. During the Exodus, God miraculously provided bread from heaven called manna to strengthen and nourish His people. And later on, Jesus refers to Himself as the bread that comes down from heaven. That is the hidden manna that Jesus is referring to. Listen to the words in John 6, 48-51. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. That I'm going to die. I'm going to give up myself. Give up my life. For the forgiveness of sin for those who believe in me. Jesus is reminding them that the food that this world has to offer, the food sacrificed to idols, the food that the Moabite women used to lure the sons of Israel with, It's worthless. He's reminding him that he is the bread that comes down out of heaven. And that anyone who wishes to partake of it, who looks to him and his perfect sacrifice for strength and sustenance, will not die, but will live 
forever with him in heaven. Next, he promises this. He says, to him who overcomes, he says, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Just in, for the sake of clarity, I want to back up here and say, we will not fully understand this promise until we receive it. And I think that's why uh, the, the phrase in this promise also says, which no one knows but he who receives it. That there's this idea that this promise is, is promised to us, yet we don't really fully understand everything in this promise until we actually receive it. And when we receive that promise, we're not here to tell others about that promise. The, the hidden things of God, Deuteronomy 29.29 says the, the hidden things, the secret things of God are His. And that there are some things that He just hasn't chosen to reveal. He says, I'm going to give you this promise, a white stone with a new name written on it, and you're not going to fully understand it until you receive it. However, what I want you to notice, and, and there's plenty of commentators who will tell you exactly what this means, and they all disagree. There's, like, there's tons of ink that has been spilt on what this passage means. I don't want to get so caught up and what this white stone is, that we forget the meaning of the passage. What I want you to notice is that God gives this to those who overcome. He gives them a precious and personal gift. It has your name written on it, a new name written on it. It's a gift. And that gift is both white, a color used to indicate holiness, and it's new. Not new as in uh, new compared to old, but New is in entirely different. That's the Greek word here. It means entirely different than what was before. And the idea here is that God and His grace will one day cause the one who overcomes the world to be made new. He will one day be made holy. And that's the promise that we have. That if you overcome the world through faith in the Son of God, that you will one day be made new. God's going to give you a precious and magnificent gift. You will one day be made holy. So in review, first we saw their praise. The church in Pergamum, they held fast to his name, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Then we saw the problem. They failed to correct false teaching in their midst. And thirdly, the promise that he who overcomes will be given a precious and personal gift. He says, repent. For he who overcomes, he's going to be given a precious and personal gift. He who overcomes will one day be made new. Here's the phrase you've all been looking for. So how do we apply all of this, both individually and corporately, at Harmony Bible Church? For those of you who are visiting, that means we're bringing the plane in for a landing. Number one, we must be like the church in Pergamum and hold fast to the name of Jesus. That as a church, we must be like the church of Pergamum and hold fast to the name of Jesus. Though we may live in Pergamum, a place of idolatry and humanistic thinking, thinking that calls itself intellectualism, we must hold fast to His name. And though we may one day live in the days of Antipas, we may very well face persecution for our faith. We must hold fast to His name. So number one, we must be like the church in Pergamum. Hold fast to His name. Number two, we must be willing to correct each other in love. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but 
That's why I'm such a proponent of community groups. We need to hold each other accountable. We need to help each other think biblically. I need people in my life to make small corrections before I get too far off track. See, the track is long. And a little, just being a little bit off course puts me way off course when I get further down the road. And I need guys like Bill Batty to come and say, whoa, buddy, you're getting a little off track there. And push me back onto the track. I need people to do that in my life. I need the church to fulfill that role that it is called to do. I need the church to continue to correct me. But we must also be willing to receive correction. We have to be willing to receive correction. We have to be willing to correct one another. Otherwise, we're not loving. We're just not. And then thirdly, so we've seen number one, we must be like the church in Pergamum and hold fast to the name of Jesus. We must be willing to correct each other in love. And then number three, we must persevere in our faith, reminding each other of the promises of God. See, we must continually lift up the gospel and direct each other's gaze toward it. We must do that. We must remember that Jesus is the bread of life, the bread that comes down out of heaven, and we find our strength in Him, not in the things that this world has to offer. Not the bread sacrificed to idols, the food sacrificed to idols. Not in our fleshly desires, but instead in Jesus and Jesus alone. And then we must encourage one another to persevere. To continue to persevere as we look forward to the day where we will one day receive the precious gift of being made new. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your mercy. God, I just pray and ask that You be with us now, that You would encourage us, bless us, God, that you work mightily in our midst. God, I pray that we would be like the church in Pergamum, that we would hold fast to the name of Jesus. God, I pray that we would be willing to correct each other in love, that we would not be like the church in Pergamum that would ignore false teaching, ignore immoral behavior, but instead we would correct each other in love, recognizing that that is the loving thing to do. And God, I pray that we would persevere in our faith, that we would constantly be reminding each other of the promises that You have declared, that You have given to us. God, we look forward to that day, that day when we will one day be made new. We pray and ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomaston, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others And we invite you to connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Harmony Bible Church. God bless you, and to God be the glory.